this time, you can turn to Psalm 33. We have no children's church this morning, um, since we like to keep the kids in for Communion Sunday. Uh, if you have young ones, though, we do have uh, busy bags in the narthex that they have some things they can be doing with those, as well as kids' sermon notes that's on the narthex table. You Feel free to go out and grab one of those if you like. We'll be in Psalm 33. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the row in front of you that you can grab and use this morning. If you're wondering why we're taking a short break from 1 Samuel, it's, it's good to take breaks from long historical narratives, but also we're looking at the life of David and looking at his life through this historical lens. But what's pretty awesome is that we have the Psalms of David. We have a way to look at David's life through a devotional lens as well. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're we're getting a, a peek into David's uh, intimate life with his God, our God. We'll be looking at the entirety of Psalm 33. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy word. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps In storehouses, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord, and he is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. How do we cultivate a life of thankfulness? What does it look like to be thankful? Well, what's the first thing we read in this psalm? Don't we read a call to worship? Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. 
Sing to him a new song. In verse 3. That's what you're doing right now, isn't it? Corporate worship. Coming together as God's people is how we are called to live a life of thankfulness. It's coming to church. It's being in worship. It's also singing the Psalms, which we have already done. Did you know the Psalms are this large collection of poems and songs that are our hymn book? It's the hymn book of the church. So we not only get to sing it, we get to preach on it. We get to study it. How else can you cultivate thankfulness in your life? How about learning an instrument? Really? Yes. Look, look at David. What we know from him is that he was a proficient musician. Played the lyre and the harp. And so we all can strive to make a joyful noise in a beautiful way. It honors God when we strive to praise Him in a variety of ways. It's important to know God's Word is not just meant to be read, it's meant to be sung. It's meant to be sung. You know, it's really easy to be bitter, to live a life of bitterness, to live in anger and frustration, to hold grudges. It's easy to become overwhelmed by the brokenness that we see in the world, all around us, in our families, and our friends, even just to live a life of sort of with a malaise of indifference, to not be a very joyful person, just kind of getting through life. So what distinguishes believers in God from non-believers when we go through trials? You see, believers know, and we remind ourselves again and again, that God shepherds us. Not just when we face trials. No, it's, it's much richer than that. But as he intentionally, intentionally leads us through trials and puts trials in our lives. He takes us through trials with the main purpose of drawing us with his voice for us to be close to him, to trust him, to enjoy the blessing of just following him wherever he leads as a shepherd leads his sheep. See, the believer will go through difficulty just like any other person. Just being a Christian doesn't mean you're going to, be, you're going to avoid difficulty in life. The difference is that we have a steadfast, sure anchor, an ultimate and certain hope, and that hope is God. There's a recent study that I saw this week that shows that, it's really interesting, that so the top 25 Christian songs right now on the charts, if you stack them all up, 25 songs, top songs, they all come from f- only four different megachurch movements. And so the article asks, have you ever wondered why a lot of popular Christian music sounds the same or sort of similar? Well, there's your answer. And they also add that many of those most popular Christian songs, which aren't all bad, by the way, right? I listen to them on the radio. They focus mostly on what God will do for me and focus a little on who God is. Now, it's not an automatically bad application to, to, to see what God does for us and how he blesses us, but it's also not the most important focus of God's word. And it's not the ultimate hope of Psalm 33 either. So what is the main thrust of the psalm? 
Well, the main idea here is in Psalm 33 that we can give thanks to God because he's powerful, because nothing can stop his plans, and because he protects his people. You see, when we look at God himself, we have plenty of fuel to ignite our praise, don't we? Plenty of fuel. So the focus of Psalm 33 is on who God really is, his glory, his power, his sovereignty, his faithfulness. And that reality speaks a vital truth that you and I will find our greatest source of comfort as we meditate and as we marinate in the truths of who God is for us. When your hope is, not, when your hope is in the giver and, and not the gifts, when you're so focused on God's glory and goodness, you can take life as it comes in the hope of receiving and enjoying more and more of Him, which results in praise. But the first three verses of Psalm 33 show us how we should praise God. Most of the psalm is about why we should praise God, but the first three verses are about how we should praise God. So I'm going to deal with them in a very quick way, spend most of our time in the rest of the psalm. But how should we praise God? Well, in new ways, with skill and care and enthusiastically. You've read, I'm sure, throughout the Psalms that we should sing a new song. How have you understood that? Have you been writing new songs lately to God? You working on that? Well, one commentator says, uh, uh, Moltier says, um, this new song, this idea of a new song, it's not so much as novel as fresh, prompted by a fresh awareness of who and what he is. True praise requires this fresh sense of God as much as it needs the fervor of joy and the skill of good musicianship. So as you read the Word, you come across things that are new and fresh to you. Those are moments when you, when you should also bring fresh and new praise to God, new thanks to Him. How about with skill? Well, what that means is essentially we should, we should uh, be praising God in a way that... that because he deserves our best effort. Our best effort. Ask the people on the music team, right? If they don't do things with their best effort, what, what response do they get from our music director? Like, what looks do they get? <laughs> <laughs> Loving, gracious, encouraging looks. But we should be giving our best effort, right? When we praise God. How about loud shouting? As Presbyterians, does that make you uncomfortable? The loud shouting part, a little bit. Yeah, Dale's nodding his head. Yeah, I mean, in our church, sometimes you'll see a little bit of swaying. You'll see some hands, you know, about right here. Not too many, way up high. But you know what I love to hear at church? Is the loud singing that we often offer God here. I've heard it said, you, you, you'll know what a church, what a church believes by the, the, the music they choose, the songs they choose to sing. But you'll really know if they really believe it in terms of how loud they sing it. So don't be afraid. Even if you're not quite on pitch, sing loud. Sing loud. God wants to hear it. Maybe you're like me and you go through times where your heart is lacking in praise and thanks to God. Have you experienced that? When you've gone through these seasons, of you, just, you just don't feel prayerful. You don't feel thankful. You don't feel like you can give God praise. Why does that happen? Why do our hearts grow dull 
and cold toward God? Could it be because the eyes of our hearts are not focused on God? They're not focused on God, but instead they're focused on ourselves. They're focused on our fears. They're focused on our little gods that we worship. So why should we praise God? We should praise God for these three reasons that the psalm gives us. First, we should praise God for his power, for his plans, number two, and for his protection. We're going to look at those three ways as to why we should praise God. Look at verses 4 through 9 with me. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. You see, friends, it's, it's good to be thankful when we realize that God is more powerful than us. So I'm a dad of, of young kids, and it's totally a dad thing, but I love to overpower my kids when we're wrestling. And they love to wrestle me too. They love to jump all three on top of me on the couch. And uh, I love to just, I just enjoy wrestling with them. And then turning it on and overpowering them just in a second and pinning them to the ground in a very loving way. (laughs) This is fun for me, right? It's fun for me as a dad to do that. Because you know why? One day I know it won't be true. I won't be able to do it. I'm going to get older. I'm going to get more frail. So I'm going to enjoy it for now, okay? I'm going to enjoy overpowering my kids when we wrestle. And you know, right now it's a good thing that I'm stronger and more capable than my kids. It means I can move them quickly from danger. It means I can help them if they get in tight spots, literally. It means I can carry them when they're too tired to walk. And so God's power in that same way is comforting to in that same way. It's comforting. It means that he's powerful enough to save me and to keep me in his care, to protect me. But the question becomes is, can I trust him? Is he good? Will he use all that power for good? Well, we get our answer in verses 4 and 5. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. First, we see that he has upright words. That that the Lord speaks the truth. He cares about what is right from wrong. He cares about truth. That all of the Bible can be trusted. All of the Bible directs us to to, to truth, to what is right. And that... His work is faithful. All his work is done in faithfulness that he can be trusted in what he's doing. The plans he has, which we'll talk about soon. The work he does in your life can be trusted. That he loves righteousness. That he's motivated. What motivates God is righteousness and justice by what is right. And then notice this very, very important word in the text in verse 5. The whole earth is full of the steadfast love of the word. That word steadfast love, it's a very rich Hebrew word called chesed. And it's this idea of covenant faithfulness. It's sticky love. It's love that sticks. It's there when you need it. It's there when you've rejected him. It's the reason why he stuck with his people Israel through all of their rebellion. Chesed love. 
covenant faithfulness. And so, what should our response be to his power? Look at verses 6 and 7. The word of the by the word of the Lord, he, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Think about just the power of water, water itself, and the power of storms. When you go out to the ocean, you see how big the ocean is, and that he put that there with a word. That Jesus controlled the wind and the waves with the disciples. That he controls tornadoes and storms. How does that make us feel? What is our response to that kind of power? Well, it's fear and awe. Look at verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Del Ralph Davis has a great line. He says, Please don't anyone spout nonsense like, This doesn't mean we should be afraid. Just that we should have reverence. No, you should be afraid. You should feel dread. It should intimidate you. Seeing his work in creation should buckle your knees. And then it may produce reverence. But don't try to bypass the fear and the trembling with your canned pastel explanation. We should fear the Lord, friends. We should be in awe of him. But it should also lead to praise, shouldn't it? Praise and thanks. We, we read the, the, the verse, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and there it stood. He didn't just create the, the world around us. He upholds it with his word. And that there is also purpose and intention and design in and through God's creation. Well, as he pr- preserves the entire cosmos. This is why science exists in the first place. Because we can know and assume that order and design is woven into creation to, to be discovered. That's what science is. It's, it's discovering what God has put in place and designed the world. And how depressing would it be if we lived in a world devoid of meaning and, or, or reason for existing? This is what materialism would have us believe. But God's power and purpose in the world around us should cast out any ultimate despair because he put it there for a purpose. He put it there for us to say how great and marvelous is our God. So praise for God's, for his uh, work, for his power. Secondly, praise for God's plans. Let's look at verse 10 through 15. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people's The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he's chosen as his heritage. It is good to be thankful even when God's plans ruin our plans. You have plans, right? I have plans. They don't always align with God's plans, do they? You see, God controls all of history. Dale Ralph Davis says, ponder what it would be like if nations were consistently successful in their schemes throughout history. Who knows how many devious plots of nations that Yahweh has nixed before they got off the ground. That's good to know. And his plans actually supersede our plans. That his plans came well before us, 
in choosing us. Look at verse 12. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he's chosen as his heritage. This is no longer applying to a geopolitical nation on earth. This is now God's church, which is the fulfillment of Israel. And that we're so happy and blessed, not because of how impressive and great we are, but because of how impressive great and great is the one to whom we belong to and who chose us. And we see also that he sees all things. Look at verse 13 through 15. He looks down from heaven. He sees the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Isn't it a good thing that God sees all and he will bring justice against all evil? We may have perplexities over why justice lingers, but our psalm assures us that nothing is missed by God. The futility of our plans, though, is frustrating, isn't it? When you make plans and it doesn't work out, it's frustrating. I don't know if any of you are classic rock fans, but there's a great line in Pink Lloyd's uh, song, Time, that captures this, this frustration of our plans and the movement of time. It says every, in, the, in the song, Time, every year is getting shorter, never seem to find the time. Plans that either come to naught or half a page of scribbled lines. Hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. The time is gone. The song is over. Thought I had something more to say. It's almost like you're reading Ecclesiastes right there. You ever felt that your plans were basically half a page of scribbled lines? That just did not work out the way you wanted to and you didn't even complete your plans? How should we answer God's plans? It's thanks and praise, but it's not easy always to get there. One of the hardest things I ever had to do in public was about a month ago, and it was to read the words of my grieving stepdad at the funeral of his son, my stepbrother, who was only 36 when he died, and and he was planning to be married in less than 30 days. That was hard. And my stepdad's words were so honest. They were so honest about his pain. But they were also so faith-filled. He mentioned that he knew God's promises. He knew God's goodness. He, he, he knows the words of the Bible about God's goodness, about his sovereignty, about his promises and his goodness. But he admitted he couldn't feel it. He didn't see it at this moment. He couldn't see how this could be used for good. How this death could be a part of God's overall plan for our lives, for our story. This isn't the way we drew it up. It's not the way we drew it up. It's not what we wanted to happen. But brothers and sisters, isn't that real faith? That even in the midst of the deepest possible pain, you can still say, even though I don't see you, God, even though I don't feel you, in the midst of the pain, when my heart and my flesh fail, when the strength of my boy fails, when my hopes are dashed, when everything that's utterly wrong and broken with this world, when I feel the curse of Adam and Eve more than ever, we can still say, whom have I in heaven but you? That there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
that my flesh and my heart and my plans may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the kind of praise that can only come from a God-focused heart. With God controlling and ruling our hearts. You see, I think much of what makes up Christianity in our culture today is this false belief that God will always bless whatever plans we come up with. Because how could God deny us? How could God go against my will? Aren't we so great? Aren't you so great? And anytime life deviates from our plans, we attribute it to whom? We attribute it to that serpent, Satan, don't we? Thus that tongue-in-cheek popular saying, I don't know if you've heard it, not today, Satan. Have you heard that? Not today, Satan. But as you read the Bible, as we've studied 1 Samuel, we realize that God is the main actor in this story. That God is the main actor in history, in our lives. That Satan amounts to this mangy dog on a leash. He can't do anything without God's permission. Remember the scene with the demons and Jesus in the Gospels? Don't cast us into the void, Jesus, Son of God. May we perhaps be sent into that herd of pigs, please? It doesn't sound like a power that can go toe-to-toe with Yahweh. The Lord looks down from heaven and sees everything. He sees evil. He sees grief. He sees your tears, and he's not indifferent to it. It may not have been a part of your plan, but he's going to walk beside you in his plan. And you know his plan, God's plan for your life, is about what ultimately matters. There's this great quote by William Carey, a great missionary. He said this once, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Tim Challey's writing about this. says, He was giving voice to the thoughts many of us have had at one time or another. There are a lot of things in life we could do. There are a lot of things in life we could succeed at but we come to realize there, there are very few that actually matter. There are very few that will make a difference to the world and to the people we care about. We know it would be tragic to look back on life and see that we had succeeded at all kinds of lesser things, but we'd failed at the greater things. Just think of how many people have gone to the grave with extravagant wealth, and all kinds of nice possessions, but with a broken marriage and with children who barely know them. Charlie says, I recently stayed with a family whose next-door neighbor had built a huge home, but who lived there alone. He and his wife had built it together, to live in it together, and then, <clears throat> and then doubled it even so that they could host great parties. But their marriage had failed. And she had left, and now he was living alone in a 10,000-square-foot house. By one measure, he succeeded. He had a giant home, an amazing car, and wealth to support it all. But by more important measures, he had failed. He was wealthy, but destitute all at once. He was an object of envy, but an object of pity. Brothers and sisters, God's plans for you 
are about the most important things, not about our minor successes. They're about the most important things, like eternity, like where are you going to end up forever? They're about, do you really know God? Do you have communion with the Creator who made you? Do you know Him? Do you dwell with Him? Do you have relationship with Him? That's what His plans are about. And most importantly, as God's people, he offers not just his plans to us, but his protection. That's what we're going to look at last, his protection. Let's look at verses 16 through 22. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who... Hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. It's good to be thankful even when life is difficult. These verses are speaking to God, being with us, protecting us when life is difficult, when war and conflict is upon us. Our hope is not in our strength, or in the strength of whatever our world thinks is strong, but our hope is in the Lord. We can't wait, brothers and sisters, we can't wait until everything is ideal before we cry out to God in praise. We do it in the midst of difficulty. There's this great line from the the song, Come Ye Sinners, by Joseph Hart. And it says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. What he's saying there is, is don't wait till you've got it all together before coming to God. Don't, don't think you're gonna, you have to get yourself to a certain standard of performance before he will then accept you. And in the same way, Don't wait to come to church or attend that Bible study until life calms down, as we often say. I'm going to wait till life calms down before I re-engage God or his people. We have to be thankful. We have to seek out praise. We have to lift up our hearts to God and be obedient even when life is difficult. It's most important when life is difficult when we're busy and we feel like we're, we're being pulled in 10 million different directions. That is when we rely on him. That's when we dig in. And so we're, fi- we're to find protection in God, but we're not to look for protection in the world's standards. What are the things the world looks to for protection? Well, how about beauty? Right, being sort of having this protection this, uh, of people looking at you and seeing that you're beautiful. See, beauty is going to fade. Beauty is going to fade. How about wealth? Well, wealth is temporary. It's insecure. How about your own strength, your physical strength? Well, that relies on what? Imperfect bodies. How about your intellect? You can be the smartest person in this room, but you'll have blind spots and you'll have shortcomings. Don't rely on your intellect. Don't rely on anything this world regards as worthy. And this has been a theme in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 17, when David and Goliath come head to head. David says, you come to me with the sword and with the spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. 
the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. It's a theme repeated throughout 1 Samuel. In Hannah's song, she says in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For what? Not by might shall a man prevail. Don't put your hope in these things. And look at verse 19 and, and following as we begin to close. What are we promised? God will deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. How is this true for the believer? Because we still have to go through death, don't we? Until, unless Jesus returns, we have to go through death. How do we escape death? What kind of death do we escape? Well, in Christ Jesus, we're protected from eternal death. This eternal separation from God. We are giving eternal life when you trust in Jesus. Romans 5, 8, Paul says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he went through death for you. That he gave up all of his strength for you to have eternal life. That is the the death we escape, brothers and sisters. And if you do not know Jesus, I want you to, to believe in this as well. I want you to be able to escape that death. I want you to be able to trust in Jesus. Death then becomes a servant. It's not something really to be feared anymore as a believer, but it's a servant that gives us eternal life. We also read in verse 19 that we're going to be sustained in famine. We're going to be sustained when times are tough, when there is little food, little sustenance in the world, in your life. What will sustain you when times are tough? God says he will. He will be with you. He will sustain you in famine when you've got nothing else. And then lastly, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. That here, as we close, we're, we're supposed to be hoping and waiting for God to arrive. And when will help arrive? Well, it already has at the cross. In the person and work of Jesus, in his broken body, and his blood poured out for you, he has arrived. He is here. And we, will, we get to enjoy him right now. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Holy Father, we thank you so much for being our God, a God who loves us, a God who, who nourishes and feeds his children. And we thank you for the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Would you bless us now as we sing our final song and go from this place? Would you bless us? Would you send us on mission for this world who has no hope? But we have hope. We have assurance. Remind us of that and bless us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen.